0: Chapter One of Tenterhooks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Tenterhooks by Ada Leverson. Chapter One A Verbal Invitation. Because Edith had not been feeling very well. That seemed no reason why she should be the centre of interest, and Bruce, with that jealousy of the privileges of the invalid, and in that curious spirit of rivalry which his wife had so often observed, had started, with enterprise, an indisposition of his own, as if to divert public attention. While he was at Carlsbad he heard the news. Then he received a letter from Edith, speaking with deference and solicitude of Bruce's rheumatism entreating him to do the cure thoroughly, and suggesting that they should call the little girl Matilda, after a rich and sainted, though still living, aunt of Edith's. It might be an advantage to the child's future, in every sense, to have a godmother so wealthy and so religious. It appeared from the detailed description that the new daughter had, as a matter of course, and at two days old, long golden hair far below her waist, sweeping lashes and pencilled brows, a rosebud mouth, an intellectual forehead, chiselled features, and a tall, elegant figure. She was a magnificent, regal-looking creature, and was a superb beauty of the classic type, and yet with it she was dainty and winsome. She had a great talent for music. This, it appeared, was shown by the breadth between the eyes and the timbre of her voice. Overwhelmed with joy at the advent of such a paragon, and horrified at edith's choice of a name bruce had replied at once by wire impulsively certainly not matilda i would rather she were called aspasia edith read this expression of feeling on a colourless telegraph form and as she was at knightsbridge unable to hear the ironical tone of the message she took it literally she criticised the name but was easily persuaded by her mother-in-law to make no objection the elder Mrs. Otley pointed out that it might have been very much worse. "'But it's not a pretty name,' objected Edith. "'If it wasn't to be Matilda, I should rather have called her something out of Meta-link, Igraine or Isolyn, something like that.' "'Yes, dear, my a nice name, too,' said Mrs. Otley, in her humouring way. "'And so is Vaseline. But what does it really matter?' I shouldn't hold out on a point like this. One gets used to a name. Let the poor child be called Asparagus, if he wishes it, and let him feel he has got his own way. So the young girl was named Aspasia Matilda Otley. It was characteristic of Edith that she kept to her own point, though not aggressively. When Bruce returned after his after-cure, it was too late to do anything but pretend he had meant it seriously. Archie! called his sister Dilly. Archie had been rather hurt at the, as it seemed to him, unnecessary excitement about Dilly. Not that he was jealous in any way. It was rather that he was afraid it would spoil her to be made so much of at her age, make her, perhaps, egotistical and vain. But it was not Archie's way to show these fears openly. He did not weep loudly, or throw things about, as many boys might have done. His methods were more... Roundabout, more subtle. He gave hints and suggestions of his views that should have been understood by the intelligent. He said one morning with some indirectness, I had such a lovely dream last night, Mother. Did you, Pet? How sweet of you. What was it? Oh, nothing much. It was all right. Very nice. It was a lovely dream. I dreamt I was in heaven. Really? How delightful. Who was there? This is always a woman's first question. "'Oh, you were there, of course. And father—nurse, too. It was a lovely dream—such a nice place.' "'Was Dilly there?' "'Dilly? Er—no. Uh, no, she wasn't. She was in the night-nursery—with Satan.' Sometimes Edith thought that her daughter's names were decidedly a failure—Aspasia by mistake. Matilda through obstinacy, and Dilly by accident. However, the child herself was a success. She was four years old when the incident occurred about the Mitchells. The whole of this story turns eventually on the Mitchells. The Otleys lived in a concise white flat at Knightsbridge. Bruce's father had some time ago left him a good income on certain conditions, one that he was not to leave the Foreign Office before he was fifty. One afternoon, Edith was talking to the telephone, in a voice of agonised entreaty that would have melted the hardest of hearts, but did not seem to have much effect on the exchange, which evidently was not responsive to Pathos that day. "'Oh, exchange, why are you ringing off? Please try again. Do I want any number? Yes, I do want any number, of course, or why should I ring up? I want six-three-seven-five, Gerard.' Here Archie interposed. Mother, can I have your long button hook? No, Archie, you can't just now, dear. Go away, Archie. Yes, I said six three seven five Gerard. Only six three seven five Gerard. Are you there? Oh don't keep on asking me if I've got them. No, they haven't answered. Are you six three seven five? Oh wrong number, sorry. six three seven five Gerard only six. Are you there? Not six three seven five, Gerard. Are you anyone else? Oh, oh! Is it you, Vincy? I want to tell you, Mother. Can I have your long button hook? Here, Bruce came in. Edith rang off. Archie disappeared. It's really rather wonderful, Edith, what the Sandow exerciser has done for me. You laughed at me at first, but I've improved marvelously. Bruce was walking about, doing very mild gymnastics, and occasionally hitting himself on the left arm with his right fist. "'Look at my muscle—look at it—and all in such a short time!' "'Wonderful!' said Edith. "'The reason I know what an extraordinary effect these few days have had on me is something I have just done which I couldn't have done before. Of course I am naturally a very powerful man, and only need a little. What have you done?' "'Why, you know that great ridiculous old wooden chest that your awful Aunt Matilda sent you for your birthday? Absurd present, I call it, mere lumber. "'Yes. When it came, I could barely push it from one side of the room to the other. Now I've lifted it from your room to the box-room. Quite easily. "'Pretty good, isn't it?' "'Yes, of course. It's very good for you to do all these exercises. No doubt it's capital. Um—' "'You know I've had all the things taken out of the chest since you tried it before, don't you?' "'Things? What things? I didn't know there was anything in it.' "'Only a silver tea service, and a couple of salvers,' said Edith, in a low voice. He calmed down fairly soon, and said, "'Edith, I have some news for you. You know the Mitchells?' "'Do I know the Mitchells?' "'Mitchell, your hero in your office, that you are always being offended with? "'At least I know the Mitchells by name. I ought to.' "'Well, what do you think they've done? They've asked us to dinner.' "'Have they? Fancy?' "'Yes. And what I thought was so particularly jolly of him was that it was a verbal invitation. "'Mitchell said to me just like this, "'Otley, old chap, are you doing anything on Sunday evening?' "'Here Archie came to the door and said—' "'Mother, can I have your long buttonhook? Edith shook her head and frowned. "'Otley, old chap,' continued Bruce, "'are you and your wife doing anything on Sunday? "'If not, I do wish you would waive ceremony and come and dine with us. "'Would Mrs. Otley excuse a verbal invitation, do you think?' I said, "'Well, Mitchell, as a matter of fact, I don't believe we have got anything on. "'Yes, old boy, we shall be delighted.' "'I accepted, you see. I accepted straight out.' when you're treated in a friendly way. I always say, why be unfriendly? And Mrs. Mitchell is a charming little woman, I'm sure you'd like her. It seems she's been dying to know you.' "'Fancy! I wonder she's still alive, then, because you and Mitchell have known each other for eight years, and I've never met her yet.' "'Well, you will now. Let bygones be bygones. They live in Hamilton Place.' "'Oh, yes. Park Lane.' "'I told you he was doing very well, and his wife has private means.' "'Mother,' Archie began again, like a litany, "'can I have your long button-hook? I know where it is.' "'No, Archie, certainly not. You can't fasten laced boots with a button-hook. "'Well, that will be fun, Bruce.' "'I believe they're going to have games after dinner,' said Bruce. "'All very jolly. Musical crambo, that sort of thing.' what shall you wear edith mother do let me have your long button hook i want it it isn't for my boots certainly not what a nuisance you are do go away i think i shall wear my salmon coloured dress with a sort of mayonnaise coloured sash no you're not to have it archie but mother i've got it i can soon mend it mother on Sunday evening, Bruce's high spirits seemed to flag. He had one of his sudden reactions. He looked at everything on its dark side. What on earth's that thing in your hair, Edith? It's a bandeau. I don't like it. Your hair looks very nice without it. What on earth did you get it for? For about six and eleven, I think. Don't be trivial, Edith. We shall be late. <laughs> "'It really does seem rather a pity, the very first time one dines with people like the Mitchells.' "'We shan't be late, Bruce. It's eight o'clock. And eight o'clock, I suppose, means—' "'Well, eight. Sure you've got the number right.' "'Really, Edith, my memory is unerring, dear. I never make a mistake. Haven't you ever noticed it?' "'Oh, yes, I think I have. Well, it's a 168 Hamilton Place. Look sharp, dear.' on their way in the taxi he gave her a good many instructions and advised her to be perfectly at her ease and absolutely natural there was nothing to make one otherwise in either mr or mrs mitchell also he said it didn't matter a bit what she wore as long as she had put on her best dress it seemed a pity she had not got a new one but this couldn't be helped as there was now no time Edith agreed that she knew of no really suitable place where one could buy a new evening dress at eight-thirty on a Sunday evening. And anyhow, he said, she looked quite nice, really, very smart. Besides, Mrs. Mitchell was not the sort of person who would think any the less of a pretty woman, for being a little dowdy and out of fashion. When they drove up to what house agents call in their emotional way a superb, desirable, magnificent town mansion— they saw that a large dinner-party was evidently going on. A hall-porter and four powdered footmen were in evidence. "'By Jove!' said Bruce as he got out. "'I'd no idea old Mitchell did himself so well as this.' The butler had never heard of the Mitchells. The house belonged to Lord Rosenberg. "'Confound it!' said Bruce as he flung himself into the taxi. "'Well—' I've made a mistake for once in my life, I admit it. Of course, it's really Hamilton Gardens. Sorry. Yet somehow I'm rather glad Mitchell doesn't live in that house.' "'You're perfectly right,' said Edith. "'The bankruptcy of an old friend and colleague could be no satisfaction to any man.' Hamilton Gardens was a gloomy little place, like a tenement building out of Marylebone Road. Bruce, in trying to ring the bell, unfortunately turned out all the electric light in the house— and was standing alone in despair in the dark when fortunately the porter who had been out to post a letter ran back and turned up the light again i shouldn't have thought they could play musical crambo here he called out to edith while he was waiting and now isn't it odd i have a funny kind of feeling that the right address is hamilton house i suppose you're perfectly certain they don't live at a private idiot asylum edith suggested doubtfully on inquiry, it appeared that the Mitchells did not live at Hamilton Gardens. An idea occurred to Edith, and she asked for a directory. The Winthrop Mitchells lived at Hamilton Terrace, St. John's Wood. "'At last,' said Bruce. "'Now we shall be too disgracefully late for the first time. "'But be perfectly at your ease, dear. "'Promise me that. "'Go in quite naturally. "'How else can I go in? "'I mean as if nothing had happened.' "'I think we'd better tell them what has happened,' said Edith. "'It will make them laugh. "'I hope they will have begun their dinner.' "'Surely they will have finished it.' "'Perhaps we may find them at their games.' "'Now, now, don't be bitter, Edith dear. "'Never be bitter. "'Life has its ups and downs. "'Well, I'm rather glad, after all, "'that Mitchell does not live in that horrid little hole.' "'I'm sure you are,' said Edith. "'It could be no possible satisfaction to you to know that a friend and colleague of yours is either distressingly hard up, or painfully penurious. They arrived at the house, but there were no lights, and no sign of life. The Mitchells lived here all right, but they were out. The parlour-maid explained, the dinner-party had been Saturday, the night before. Strange, said Bruce as he got in again, I had a curious presentiment that something was going wrong about this dinner at the Mitchells. "'What, dinner at the Mitchells? There doesn't seem to be any.' "'Do you know,' Bruce continued his train of thought, "'I felt certain somehow that it would be a failure. Wasn't it odd? I often think I'm a pessimist, and yet look how well I'm taking it. I'm more like a fatalist. Sometimes I hardly know what I am.' "'I could tell you what you are,' said Edith. "'But I won't, because now you must take me to the Carlton. We shall get there before it's closed.' End of chapter one.